This episode will have a special extended B-side cut exclusively on spinitpod.com, so be sure to swing on by and check it out. I've listened to Abbey Road by The Beatles for more than a decade. And I listened to it once yesterday. Welcome to Spin It, episode 100! everybody and welcome back for the 100th time to spin it the record ranking podcast for people who would rather be listening to music i'm james and with me once again for the 100th time is connor it's me how you feeling today 100 weeks older it's yeah uh yeah 100 weeks older than when we first did our little billy joel episode way back in the day 101 weeks older since our pilot episode It's true. Look how far we've come. This is the first episode of Triple Digits. can't believe we've made it. I can't believe we're at Triple Digits already. Like, what? It feels like it's been no time at all. Now aiming for Quadruple Digits. (laughs) Spin it pod millennium celebration. 900 (laughs) short weeks away. Get ready. But yeah, it's our 100th episode. And we're celebrating pretty much for the next four weeks, really, because our two-year anniversary is also right around the corner at episode 104. Yeah. So we're going to be doing all kinds of special streams. We've got some new merch launching on the store. We've got some exciting new developments on the Mixtaper's Twitter at the underscore Mixtaper. Should we tease what that is now? Is now a good time to tease what he's been working on? Yeah. Or should I, I guess we should let him tease when we when we get there. We don't want to steal his thunder. Right, true. We don't want to steal his thunder, so we'll let him talk about that. But So yeah, stay tuned tuned for factor spin this week i guess and i'm excited for factor spin this week but before we get into everything suffice it to say keep an eye out on our social channels for information about streams and and events and other fun things we've got going on check out the new 100 episodes tab on spinitpod.com which will be there for the next few weeks yeah that'll have all kinds of like catch-up playlists and greatest hit moments and all kinds of other fun stuff we've been putting together so that'll all be there spinitpod.com we got some special episode 100 merch yeah and it all looks really good we'll uh have some photos of ourselves repping it probably it's true it's possible now this is an episode i've been looking forward to for a long time not just because it's episode 100 but way back when we started the podcast i knew episode 100 would have to be for something really special and in my mind i feel like i've said it a couple times already on the podcast that there's really only one band that could occupy that episode 100 space in my heart and it would feel correct that's the Beatles. I've been listening to the Beatles since, I mean, they're kind of the band that got me into music. I don't know anyone who likes the Beatles more than you. And that's why I'm excited for Factor Spin is I don't want to jinx myself at the very beginning of the episode, but I feel like I maybe know a little bit more. He's going for a shutout, folks. I'm hoping for a shutout. <laughs> I really have to get back for the last couple. I mean, coin was what it was, but but I've got to get back for the last couple bad weeks for me. So I don't know. I just I've been listening to the Beatles for a significant portion of my life, probably since 2009, 10, you know, since forever. I know all these songs like the back of my hand. And obviously, Abbey Road has been an important album, not only in my musical journey, but also on my ranking spreadsheet. And I thought, what better way to celebrate album rankings than with Abbey Road? Should we just say what spot it is (laughs) right now? No, save it for the end. I mean, people can just go look. The fact that we're doing this now. I think it's pretty obvious that it's... I know, it's up there. 
Also, just as a heads up, this episode is just going to have to be a B-side episode. I started taking notes, and I realized my notes were getting pretty long. So a a good amount of the Beatles' history and uh, trivia about Abbey Road is going to end up on spinitpod.com extended edition cut. The normal episode will probably be decently close to normal length, I hope. (laughs) But we'll find out. I don't know. I think we'll probably end up focusing on maybe mostly the beginning of their career. This is obviously a a prime returning potential band. And I think any future episodes would definitely be a great chance to dig into the middle of the Beatles career. So this will be like an origin story and a conclusion. Well, let's do it. Let's talk about the Fab Four. Mm. What is your experience like with the Beatles? I mean, you've proclaimed yourself to be a classic rock guy, and the Beatles kind of obviously evolved the genre a lot. I don't know if they're within your umbrella of typical music. Some of their bigger hits are. Come Together, That's that, that one pops up all the time on my classic rock playlist. Oh, I'm sure it does. Here Comes the Sun comes up a lot. Do-do-do-do. Yeah, so you're not going into this album completely blind. No. What about like older Beatles, like the I Want to Hold Your Hands and the you know, yesterdays. Of course I know yesterday. Okay, that's a good one to know. I'm the ballad guy. True. Yeah, and the Beatles definitely have some iconic ballads from Let It Be to Hey Jude, you know. Yeah, yeah. We actually did in high school a Beatles marching men show. Oh, so you know the trumpet part for a lot of these songs. Yeah. Good. There are some Beatles songs with some pretty rocking trumpet parts. Mostly I'm thinking of Penny Lane. I just love the heck out of it. (laughs) But let's talk about them. The Beatles, the Fab Four, John Lennon on the guitar and the vocals, Paul McCartney, bass, vocals, piano. Obviously, Lennon and McCartney are one of the most esteemed songwriting duos in modern music. George Harrison played the guitar, occasionally sings, but he's the quiet Beatle, you know, and also does some pretty gifted songwriting on a lot of these albums. The George Harrison tracks are often standouts. And then Ringo Starr plays the drums, sings occasionally. They're from Liverpool, England, over across the pond from us in America. Are you ready for a Beatles history lesson? Is there going to be a test at the end? Maybe. Then no. I won't tell you if there's going to be a test to force you to pay attention. Yeah, well, now I'm going to not pay attention to rebel. Mm. Your test doesn't dictate how much I'm paying attention. Fair enough. I guess. So the Beatles initially started out as a group called the Quarry Men, which is a band that John started with his school friends back in 1956, like the 50s. That feels like such a long time ago. Some of our oldest albums that we've talked about on the podcast have barely predated 1956. They played skiffle music, which is a really loose, folk-inspired, genre-blended type of American music. It's very interesting. For a second, I thought you said skittle music. No, not skittle. I was very interested. Skiff, skiffle, like with F. Taste the rainbow. (laughs) Not Skittle. Skiffle. Yeah. They played Skiffle music. In 1957, John meets Paul McCartney, and Paul joins his band. He was just 15 years old, and a year later, he brought George Harrison into the fold. They also picked up drummer Pete Best, and they did a slight rebrand into the Silver Beatles, but like B-E-E-T-L-E-S, which was a tribute to Buddy Holly and the Crickets, and that eventually... No? That guy just looks like Buddy Holly. <laughs> I, I can understand the confusion, but that wasn't him. Oh. Yeah. But the Silver Beatles eventually got shortened down to the Beatles, B-E-A-T-L-E-S, that we all know and love. What an excellent name, by the way. Yeah, nothing better than naming yourself after a bug. No, but they're not directly named after the bug. They changed the second E to an A to make it like rhythm, like the beat of a song. It's pretty great. <laughs> they spent some time, a lot of time actually, doing a residency in Hamburg 
The band went back to Liverpool and started playing around clubs, notably the now-famous Cavern Club, and it was during one of these regular performances that they caught the attention of Brian Epstein, who would go on to be their manager until his untimely death in 1967. Whoa. And he's the one that would get them connected to producer George Martin and EMI's Parlophone Records. And I think it's really hard to overstate the impact that Brian Epstein and George Martin had on the group. That pair, I mean, took this group to the moon. Yeah. The band's first official recording session with George Martin happened at the future Abbey Road Studios, and he wasn't initially a huge fan of Pete Best's drumming. He replaced all of Pete Best's drum tracks with a session drummer, and at that point, the band kind of realized he was not going to work out long-term, and so they recruited one Richard Starkey, more commonly known today as Ringo Starr, from another Liverpoolian band called Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. Richard, I don't know if I ever knew Ringo Starr's real name. Yeah, Richard Starkey. Ringo is a lot cooler. What a cool name. Ringo joined in 1962, and that's what cements the legendary lineup. By the end of the year, they were already recording songs that would be future number one hit singles, and they knew it, too. When they finished recording Love Me Do and Please Please Me, George Martin told them, you've just made your first number one. And he was right. What if he said that about every single song they recorded, though? (laughs) Yeah, but he didn't. He said it about the one that actually went to number one. In 1963, after their fifth residency in Hamburg, they got to work on their first proper album, Please Please Me. They set a precedent that would last throughout their career where every member would have a featured vocal on the album. So everybody gets to sing at least one song. Lennon and McCartney start songwriting, and they struck a deal where any song written by either of them would get credited to both of them for the Beatles. That's smart, I feel like. It is, and it's worked out well for them. So Please Please Me drops in March of 1963 after they cranked out 10 of its 14 tracks in a single recording session. And it is a rocket to the moon. It's their first number one album in the UK, beginning a string of 11 number one records in a row. And it also kicked off international superstardom and the phenomenon known as Beatlemania. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. They make their first appearances in America in 1964, And now we're kind of in the middle of their career. We're kind of breezing past the middle a little bit. But some key points. In the mid-60s, their musical style starts to evolve. The music gets a little weird. It gets a little (laughs) different. Yeah. Their last commercial show was on August 29th, 1966 in San Francisco. But they did perform live one last time in 1969, playing songs from their Let It Be album from the Apple Rooftop in London, which is an iconic show. In the middle of their career... They also put out Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, one of their most famous records of all time. I know the trumpet part to that one. To Sgt. Pepper? Yeah. That's an interesting one to know. That was from the marching band show? Yeah, we did that one. We did Yesterday. I don't even remember what that show all consisted of. It was There was a lot of just little snippets of random songs, I think. I think there was a medley or two in there. Yeah, I can imagine. I don't remember. The last thing you need to know from this mid-period that's going to become relevant in a bit is tension really started to rise within the band. They started to write, like I said, more and more songs separately and even record separately. But now it's time to talk about this week's focal point, Abbey Road. Abbey Road is the band's 11th of 12 studio albums, which is a number that excludes the Magical Mystery Tour, which pretty often counts as an EP in their discography like it was in the UK, even though it was an LP in the United States. Abbey Road came out in September of 1969, and while it wasn't the last album the band released, because they still had to put finishing touches on Let It Be, Abbey Road was the last album they started recording. They started working on it in February of 1969, and they worked on it all the way until August. 
the last day of work where they sequence the album and they finalize the track order and stuff, put it all together, yeah. was the very last day all the Beatles would ever be in a studio together. Oh, that's crazy. I know. And that's what makes Abbey Road so special. They played around with a couple different ideas for the album. They thought about making one side, all of John Lennon's songs, all of Paul McCartney's songs were going to be the other side, but they kind of scrapped that idea a little bit. Paul wanted to make this unique medley of everything, you know, a Sgt. Pepper-esque concept album. John Lennon wants to do traditional track-by-track style, so they decided to compromise. And what we got is an album where the A side is full of individual songs, but the B side features a massive 16-minute medley of songs that the band referred to as the long one. Can we get a sneak peek of what you thought of the medley? No. Oh, man, really? No sneak peeks. Ah, Fine, we'll wait till we get there. When they recorded the album, they upgraded from a four-track tape machine to an eight-track, which made overdubbing their songs easier. It was also, for you recording tech nerds out there, one of the first albums ever to be produced with a solid-state transistor mixing console. Nice. Right? I know. Abbey Road was the first album ever to be solely released with a stereo mix. They didn't bother with mono. Oh. Yeah. The record is obviously notable for a lot of reasons, but one of the things people talk about is Abbey Road's use of the Moog synthesizer, which was actually the first commercially available synthesizer. George bought one of these synths in 1968, and he loved it. It's a whole new kind of sound for the band. I mean, because frankly, it's a whole new kind of sound for anyone. And it shows up in Because, Here Comes the Sun, and Maxwell's Silver Hammer, very prominently. Abbey Road debuted at number one in the UK and stayed there for 11 weeks straight. And at that point, it took a week off for Rolling Stone's Let It Bleed, but then it bounced right back to number one and stayed there for six more weeks. In total, it ended up on the charts for 81 weeks, selling 4 million copies in its first two months. That is a mind-blowing statistic. 4 million copies in two months. That'd be like, I mean, imagine 4 million people listening to an episode of Spin It since episode like 90. That is kind of wild. Yeah. In the United States, it was number one for 11 weeks. And in Japan, it was in the top 100 for 298 weeks. That's almost six years that it was in Japan's top 100. That's wild. Like, that is the length of the Beatles' entire career, right? That Abbey Road was in Japan's top 100. <laughs> <laughs> that is wild. wow. I mean, you can't make an album that performs much better than that. We will. Connor's Hippin' and Hoppin' album. <laughs> yeah. Headed to the top of the Japanese charts. Double the length of the time of the Beatles' whole career. 12 years, huh? You want to you wanna throw down the gauntlet for a 12-year top 100 album? Yeah. Critics actually weren't very sure about the album when it came out, despite all of its success, but obviously it's gone down in history as an all-timer. It's got a five-star rating from AllMusic, Rolling Stone, and more. It's got a 10 out of 10 from Pitchfork. Rolling Stone put it at number five on their greatest albums of all time list. It's the band's best-selling album, and it's been consistently, constantly in production since its release. Today, it's been certified more than 12 times platinum. It's got more than 31 million units in sales worldwide. And here's another wild, rapid-selling statistic. In 2010, when the Beatles catalog finally made it to iTunes, right, 50 years later, mind you, Abbey Road became the ninth most downloaded album ever on the iTunes store within a week. Wow. Yeah, I know. Think about how much stuff people downloaded from iTunes, and Abbey Road came out of nowhere and eclipsed them all. So that's Abbey Road and the end of the Beatles' recording career, more or less. The last song they would ever record, period, 
was a track for Let It Be, George's song I Me Mine. Let It Be came out and the band officially broke up in 1970. People kind of tend to point the finger at John's wife Yoko Ono for the split, but honestly, it goes a lot deeper than that. That's just kind of like an easy scapegoat for most people, I think. But just think about all that this band accomplished in seven years. (laughs) It's so wild. After they broke up, each of the members went on to do a lot of solo work. Paul McCartney went on to form Wings with his wife, Linda. On December 8th, 1980, John Lennon was killed outside his New York City apartment by Mark David Chapman. George Harrison died from lung cancer in late 2001. But Paul and Ringo are still making music and touring to this day. Going strong. Going strong indeed. As far as the Beatles' accolades go, it's kind of a shockingly short list. But remember the era they're coming from, you know, before awards were a huge thing they just aren't that good you shut up i'll kick you (laughs) off this podcast so fast (laughs) no they did win 52 major awards on 111 nominations including only 111 yes and i know beyonce had like more than that in her first year (laughs) beyonce had so many (laughs) but yes the beatles have 52 major awards including an oscar for best original song score in 1971 for let it be a billboard music award for album of the year with their compilation album one they also won four brit awards which began in 1977 so they picked those up late they have 11 grammys on 28 nominations from 1965 to 2008 a grammy lifetime achievement award in 2014 a grammy trustees award in 1972 and they have seven albums and eight singles in the grammy hall of fame abbey road made the cut in 1995 and it was their second album to make it into the hall of fame after sergeant pepper two years earlier they've also got 17 nme awards and somehow they even have an mtv video music award that they earned in 1984 what yeah the beatles the beatles earned an mtv vma in 1984 unreal wild It is wild. Okay, so 1984 was actually the first year of the VMAs. And so a bunch of bands just got awards late like this. It was a Video Vanguard Award that went to the Beatles and Richard Lester. Huh. Yeah. They were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1988, the UK Music Hall of Fame, and the Vocal Group Hall of Fame in 2004. And that's just as a group. You know, obviously, they've each got plenty more individual awards to consider in future other Spinet episodes, possibly. So... You know, stay tuned for those. And that's all I've got to say. I say that like it wasn't a lot, but I know it was a lot. (laughs) Okay, now it's time for the mixtaper to get whooped in Factor Spin. I'm talking a big game. I should, once again, be a little more cautious. Let's get him out here for Factor Spin. What do we say? Not 100, but close. Close. For this episode 100 special round of Factor Spin. Hey, it's me. The Mixtaper. Hello, Mixtaper. Welcome to episode 100. How are you on this centennial... I'm not nervous. Why would you Why would you ask that? Oh, <laughs> no, I, yeah, I know. I know you're not. Clearly, you exude confidence. Uh, Frankly, I'm nervous, too. I've talked a big game about this episode. I know a lot about the Beatles, but... Easiest round ever. I sure hope it is, but there's no guarantees. For the stakes, by the way, let's clarify, since it's episode 100, Factor Spin Recap. Episode zero, the test episode, right, was its own season. Of course, we split it 50-50. Then, season one, the hosts won 58-39. Wow. Season two, the hosts won 66-36. Season three was a short one. The hosts won 6-2. to two. 
Season 4, you won Mixtaper, 26-24. And Season 5, you won 29-19. Right now we're in Season 6, and have been since the start of 2023. Currently the score is 48 hosts, 45 Mixtaper. Oh wow, I'm closer than I thought. That's really close. (laughs) Those couple of shutouts really helped. (laughs) Two shutout weeks will really keep you in the running. So those are the stakes. Yeah, this has been a long season. I wonder when the... When the showrunners will decide to move on to a new one. No, I don't know. The game decides itself, right? Isn't that how it's worked in the past? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But it has been a long season. I'm excited to continue it with this round of Factor Spin. Now, this is a longer B-side episode. Am I looking at four facts? Am I looking at six, eight, 20? How many facts do we have? Do I get to know? We're looking at more than a normal classic four. Okay. I will brace myself accordingly. But I'm not going to tell you how many. And I only have four of them picked out for you normal side listeners. Okay. So the normal episode will still have four. All the extras, however many they may be, will be on the B side. So get over there if you're not already. So you just still have to pick a number one through four. Great. Let's start with the Fab Four. Fab number four. Fab number four? (laughs) Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, that was a neat little Easter egg for the Beatles episode. Thank you. They were bombarded by confectionery. Confectionery? Yeah. You're talking about, sorry, I don't want to tell you what I know and what I don't know beforehand. No, go ahead. Go for it. I This sounds familiar, right? Okay. When they came to the United States, I feel like John Lennon had recently made the announcement that his favorite candy was jelly beans or something, right? And so when they played a show, mm. all the fans showed up with jelly beans and, and, well, bombarded them. That is what I'm talking about. John Lennon, favorite candy, jelly beans. Fans threw them on stage at them. I don't like... Oh, boy. <laughs> well, you say that, but... I don't like the position I'm in right now because if my memory was wrong <laughs> and I remembered that incorrectly, oh, you totally could have just... Oh, yeah, you're right. No, no, no. Hold on. But you could have just regurgitated <laughs> it back to me and I would have been like, I knew it. Yes, yes. <laughs> you would have been lying because you just confirmed my misinformation. However, I think my memory's right. I'm going to say that this one's a fact. When did this happen? Don't... You can't... I'm going to say it's a fact. I'll ask my questions later. This is... A spin. Oh, is it a spin? <laughs> it's a spin because of you. You got cocky. I, I thought so. <laughs> Did I miss some details? You missed some details. It was George Harrison and Jelly Babies, Je- not Jelly Beans. <laughs> Shoot. <laughs> well, I was on the brink. I mean, that was really close. <laughs> So thank you for that free point. <laughs> <laughs> I clearly knew of this event. Was this like, what, 1964? I mean, their first America trip, 65? Yeah, yeah, it was when they came to America, yep. Uh-huh. Shoot. Yeah. So that, you knew. Yeah. You knew, too, because I said <laughs> I did it to myself. And then you played so dumb with that that I totally believed. Uh-huh. I had to play dumb. Yeah. Wow. Well, that was, I mean, bravo. Thank you for the free point. What a way to start out. Jelly babies. All right. Curse you, jelly babies. Maybe next time you'll be so cocky. No, I won't. I'll (laughs) let you tell me the whole story, and then at the end I'll tell you I knew it. I just got excited. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I have to pick another fab. Yeah, another fab. Let's do fab three. Fab three. They knew what they wanted to do today. Are you talking like Phineas and Ferb? What? (laughs) (laughs) That, That is another good reference, but no, that's not what I'm talking about. Okay. What are you talking about? I'm talking about the Jungle Book. Yes, the Jungle Book. 
I know that movie. The Vultures. The Vultures in the Jungle Book. Yes. Go on. I remember them? They're like, oh, what do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? Yeah. I don't know. What do you want to do? I do. I... Well, that's not the Beatles. They knew what they wanted to do. What did they want to do? Not be the Vultures in the Jungle Book. They didn't want to be the Vultures? Yeah, but Disney really wanted them to really badly. And did they end up doing it? No, they didn't. That's what I just said. They did not want to be the vultures. I'm just confirming. Why did they not want to do it? I also don't remember when the Jungle Book came out. Mm, no Googling. I'm not Googling anything. John Lennon said the Beatles would not be would not be singing for Mickey Mouse. Singing? Yeah. Do the vultures sing? No, which makes it a weird quote. But maybe they would have if they would gotten the Beatles <laughs> to do it. True. He also said you, you'll have better luck getting Elvis Presley to do it. Interesting. So who ends up playing the vultures? Because I feel like I remember hearing about Ringo being a vulture. Let's see. Flaps the vulture was Chad Stewart. Dizzy the vulture was Lord Tim Hudson. Buzzy the vulture was Pat O'Malley. Ziggy the vulture was Digby Wolf. Interesting. That's what I'm claiming, at least. You said you think you remember Ringo being a vulture? Yeah, I feel like either that's a myth or it's mm. true or I heard it sometime. Mm. I know Ringo's done other voiceover and voice acting work. I grew up on Thomas the Tank Engine, so mm. I am also kind of playing to you a little bit because I know... You were worried about finding facts I might not know. Hmm. I think this one's a spin. I think this one's a spin. You think they are the vultures? Or that you just think Disney didn't even want them? Or like, wait, what's how is it a spin? I think, well, I'm mostly hung up on the weird context of that quote. The vultures, I don't think, were ever intended to sing. And so John Lennon talking about how they're not going to sing for the mouse, I feel like maybe that comes from a different context. Mm. I can't be 100% sure. It's it's messing with me. This is a good one. You, you've done a good job with this. Thank you. This is a fact. Wow. <laughs> wow. They were approached. Disney really wanted them. John Lennon was having none of it. Yeah. And so I guess Ringo wasn't a vulture. Why did I think that? I don't know. It would have been cool. Did they maybe approach him for like the remake or something? Maybe. I don't know. I mostly just watched The Jungle Book 2. I grew up on the sequel, not on the original Jungle Book. Oh. Yeah. That's right. I do remember that about you. Hold on. What'd you Google? I'm just trying to figure out the vultures in Jungle Book 2. Jungle Book 2. Phil Collins voices Lucky in The Jungle Book 2. Yeah. I didn't know that. I got my British drummers all out of whack. <laughs> I'm That's disappointing. Let's go to Fab 1. Yeah. Fab 1, man. On the normal side, I, the best you can do is 50-50 now since you gave me that free one. A mistake. Tr truly a mistake. <laughs> uh, number one, you said? Yeah. They bought a cool private island. Is it Bottom Rocks? <laughs> it is not. Is it Goat K? Oh, no, it's not. <laughs> what private island did they buy? A guitar-shaped private Greek island. What? And when I say guitar shaped, it's kind of loosely guitar shaped. Loosely. I People wasn't sure. Think it's guitar shaped, but I don't I don't I don't buy it. Okay. I I thought maybe it'd be like a man-made island, you know. If it's specifically guitar shaped. What's it called? Ethereal Island. Why did they do this? And when? When and why? So it was after completing the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band album. John Lennon suggested that the Beatles purchase their own private island off the coast of Greece. 
so that they'd have somewhere to go when they weren't touring and work on music and hang out. And, I mean, who doesn't want an island? I mean, I think a lot of people don't, but okay. And did they ever go visit, use it? Yeah, they bought it, but they didn't really use it because they, you know, broke up. Right. <laughs> and what happened to it? Uh, after they broke up, John Lennon sold it. So they just bought an island in Greece collectively for no reason. Yeah. Didn't ever use it or visit it and sold it. Yeah. Darn it. If this is true, that's the only way it could be true. I feel like any other way I would have known about it. I think this is a spin. Going with spin? Yeah. We've done some private island things before. I don't know why this one in particular. I also don't know about any guitar-shaped islands loosely. Maybe you do, and mm-hmm. you thought maybe I'd believe that the Beatles bought it. I don't know. It's iffy. It's iffy. That's, that just feels like a big purchase, a major purchase. You'd at least want to go visit. And as far as I can recall, the Beatles didn't really go to Greece as a band. I don't know. This is a spin. <laughs> All right. Okay. But... It's almost true, and so much almost true, that a lot of people do think it's true. Really? How did that happen? Yeah, so much so that I had it down as a true fact until, you know, as I've said in the past, I cross-reference, find multiple sources for all my facts. Of course. I started coming across ones that said it wasn't true and had to do a little deeper digging. Okay. Wow, a lot of confusion. Yeah. A lot of places will say that they did buy it, but it I'm pretty certain is confirmed they did not buy it. Negotiations never worked out, but they almost bought they it. They came close. Wow. Yeah. Well, I know they sing in, like, when I'm 64 about having a cottage in the Isle of Wight, you know. Yeah. Island Talk exists. But I just don't think they were too interested in Greece ever, like, as a band. I don't know. Well, they tried to buy an island there. Here it is. And you tell me if you think it's (laughs) guitar-shaped. I gotta be honest, I don't. Yeah. I I guess I could see it, but not really. Yeah, like, if you were to show me this and say, look at this guitar-shaped island, it could be like, okay, I see where you're going with it. Yeah. But I would never look at that on my own and go, oh, that's a guitar. Maybe with the way that they've got the trees planted in rows, so they look a little bit like strings. That's the only thing that would, like, lead me there right now. Maybe. I was hoping either you had heard of, you know, you you were caught up in the myth, or you maybe would misremember it with the private island that John Lennon did buy after the Beatles broke up. Mm, No, no misremembering, no myth-busting. That was news to me. You got that one. Good, I'm glad I got that one, because I don't know... I mean, I know I won last week. I don't know if I can handle a shutout again on this of all episodes. (laughs) On this episode of all episodes? That would have been nuts. (laughs) Oh, I'm never going to forgive myself for the jelly bean thing either way. The next fact goes. (laughs) But here we are. This is the grave I've dug myself. What's that last fact? The world thought Ringo Starr had his toenails removed. That's an awful fact. We've already had toenail facts before, too, right? With Tom York's really expensive toenails that someone dug out of his trash can. What happened to Ringo's toenails? Allegedly. Apparently nothing, but the world thought it. They thought he just had them removed, that he didn't want them anymore. Why would they think that? Because that was um, what was reported by the news. Why would they say that? (laughs) Because they thought he had his toenails removed. Yeah, but okay, but then why would they think that? <laughs> it's a loop. We're in a loop. <laughs> the, the news people just got it messed up. They just said it. No reason. Well, he had his tonsils removed, and they misunderstood and thought it was toenails. Wow. Tonsils. That's wild. <laughs> when did that... What? How does that make sense? When did this happen? 1964. This is bizarre. Sure is. Toenails removed. Were there any consequences to this? Did people start asking him about it? Did people... Yeah, people were like, what the heck? Riot in the streets? Oh, they didn't ride in the streets. <laughs> you know. Uh, it's another one of those... 
of those things that was often believed by Beatle fans for a long time. For a long time? Like, that seems like a thing that'd be really easy to confirm. Well, I don't know what. Ringo Starr just, every time somebody's like, you had your toenails removed, takes off his shoes. It's like, no, look. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be easy. One person at a time. I think this is a true fact. True fact. Yeah, strangely enough, because this isn't a fact about Ringo getting his toenails removed. This is just a fact that people thought he did. And so I feel like if he didn't, I feel like if it was a spin, you would have just said he had his toenails removed for some reason or another. And That would have been way too obvious. There's no way I get that past you. <laughs> You, you could have done it if you uh, thought about it. There's no way I come to this episode and go, Ringo Starr had his toenails removed and you believe it. You said weirder. Come on now. Okay, well, either way, I think this is a true <laughs> fact. I think there was a headline misprint, some editor miscommunication somewhere, and Ringo Starr was accused of having squishy toes. But that is not the case. I've put myself in a, in a bit of a conundrum here. How? How so? <laughs> I don't know. I anticipated you asking another question or two. Oh, yeah? I I don't know if I've successfully turned this into a spin or not. <laughs> I've been stretching the truth, but I don't know if I stretched it enough because you jumped to giving me an answer faster than I anticipated. Well, this is wild. What's the true story? Maybe the audience could be the judge. <laughs> True story is that uh, the BBC announcer, Roy Williams, accidentally said that Ringo Starr had his toenails removed, but he was just misread it, tonsils his toenails, and corrected himself, and there was no, like, myth that people believed, really. But he did say it. It was reported. He did say it. And so, therefore, uh -huh. for a little bit of time, before he corrected himself, people did probably believe it. Yeah, I just, that's what I said. I started stretching, like, people were, like, asking him about it, and it was believed for years, and... I don't know if I stretched it enough to turn it into a spin. <laughs> it was really just a quick slip of the tongue, you know? Yeah. On a report. And I was trying to make it bigger. I don't think that counts as a spin. I kind of think it does. <laughs> I know you do. <laughs> and I know you do. <laughs> like, we both have a vested interest in it being one way or the other. Yeah, I feel like the tie has to go to the runner here. After, I mean, I screwed up so bad on the jelly bean thing. Well, I know, and I kind of feel bad. You know, yeah, maybe, yeah. I maybe feel like a 50-50. And we hash it out in the on the B side. Okay, I guess we'll 50-50 this one. <laughs> that was a really unsatisfying <laughs> way to end episode 100's factor spin. Well, it's not over yet. I mean, what a we've done some we've done some memorable factor spin goofs in the past. You even had to give me a point back on our Grammy special, mm -hmm. but this this is a weird one. Mm -hmm. And on the lights episode, we didn't know at the end of the episode whether it was true or not. It wasn't just that you couldn't lie about it. It's just that we didn't have any idea. Yeah. So it's not over yet, though. I go to the B side to see how this one turns out. But I think with your goof on the first one, my goof on the second one, we went 1-1 one, one on the other two. We'll just call it a 50-50 week. <laughs> Seems to be a good way to go. And honestly, I'm happy I got any points. So <laughs> there you go. Yeah, see? I was worried this week. But now let's head on over to the B-side. Yeah, I'm scared to know what you hid behind the B-side wall. <laughs> I think it gets a lot harder after this. I don't know. Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. Tune in to find out on the B-side. www.spinoutpod.com. That was fun. That was a lot of fun. What a great round of factor spin. A, a fitting one for the 100th episode. Yeah. It was back and forth. It was, There was drama. I, I rewarded the B-side listeners with some fast-fired facts. But with that... You know, I'm I'm happy. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Sorry, go ahead. Don't you have an announcement to make? I have an announcement to make! <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, we, we left it just for you, and we almost flew right past it. If you aren't already, like like a fool, 
I've I've learned that to be a good well, supervillain, you gotta call people fools. Is that all it takes? Well, I've been watching a lot of Disney movies, and that's like what all their villains do. They call people fools. It's a solid strategy. So anyway, if you're if you're a fool and not following me on Twitter at the underscore mixtaper, you might want to head on over there and and give me a quick follow because I'm starting a blog. You're starting a blog? Yeah. I got a lot of knowledge rattling around up here in this mixtaper brain of mine, and the fans have a lot of questions of, about just me in general. It's true. And so to give the people what they want, you know, I thought I'd start doing like a weekly blog where I take a question that I get asked a lot or something and answer it to the best of my ability, drop a little mixtaper wisdom in there, sprinkle a little a little mixtaper knowledge onto them sure uh, and put them out in blog format nice so those will be little minute long audio blogs you're saying on twitter and spinitpod.com yeah absolutely with, with like extra bits of mixtape or lore here's the first one now oh let's hear it welcome to a it's me the mini blog where we get to know the villain behind the mask hey mixtaper hey it's me the mixtaper that's right so our first question for our very first mini blog ever is a pretty straightforward one why did you want to start a blog because blogs are like the new hip thing with the kids these days you know trying to stay hip trying are audio blogs the new hip thing yeah kids these days be blogging as i'm told so they say and what do you hope to accomplish with this blog what's your goal raise awareness of you yeah pretty much okay <laughs> i'm actually here to announce my candidacy for president <laughs> well that's all the time we have for today keep an eye on all our social channels for more a it's me mini blogs with the mixtaper yeah. if you want to get more knowledge bombs from myself the mixtaper go ahead follow me at the underscore mixtaper on twitter Go check us out on www.spinapod.com. And uh, if you've got a question you'd like me to answer on my blog, hit us up anywhere you can contact us. we got the email out there. Thespinapodcast at gmail.com. Yep, there you go. Any of the social medias and like the comment sections on YouTube, anywhere you want to give me a question to answer, give it to me and I'll I'll give you a classic mixtaper answer. Your question may be featured on an A, it's me. But with that, I got to get off and do some more blogs. You know, I'm in a blogging mood right now. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that was a pretty good blog. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah. Kids be blogging. That's what they say. Yeah. All right. Well, that's exciting. Mixtaper blog. I know I'll be tuning in mostly because I'm going to help him make them. What do you think? You gonna listen to Mixtaper's blog, Connor? I'm there for moral support when he records them. You live his blog. <laughs> yeah, I live his blog every day. Yeah, that's funny. Also, I'm realizing we didn't tell people when the Mixtaper didn't failed to mention when the blogs would start coming out, and it's for the beginning of year three, folks. So you know, with the first episode of year three, that week will be his first blog. Oh, he got so excited, he forgot to say when they would come out. So like a month from now. Yeah. We just wanted to announce it early so people had time to submit questions and... And get ready and get excited. Exactly. I feel like we're kind of in a teaser season right now, you know? Yeah. Throughout the next couple of weeks, we might be teasing some upcoming year three shenanigans. It, it is our birthday month. This year especially, we're celebrating 100 to 104, so... We're not allowed to celebrate birthdays on this podcast. Yeah, well... <laughs> At least not this year. Well, you can try again next year. <laughs> right. You really had me worried there. You would have won this week had you not blown that first one. I really screwed up. <laughs> I showed my hand too far too fast. You got too excited. Yeah, jelly babies, huh? I'm that is I'll never forget it again. Never in my life. Jelly babies and the wrong you had the wrong beetle. Yeah, but that's secondary. It's just really the jelly <laughs> babies thing is oh, that's hard. <laughs>
Yeah. Well, let's talk about the album cover of Abbey Road. Yeah. It's probably pretty close to the most iconic album art we've talked about so far. It's up there. Up there. It's definitely one of the most recognizable album covers of all time, if not the most recognizable one. Although I'd argue Dark Side gives it a run for its money. It's on the short list either way. The photo, it features the band walking across the crosswalk outside Abbey Road Studios in step with each other. John's in front, followed by Ringo, Paul, and then George bringing up the rear. That's a drivable road too. Like you have to stop and get your picture taken when there's not traffic coming. You gotta like look for us time to do it. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And it was absolutely a drivable road when the Beatles took this picture as well. Yeah. I mean, look at all the cars in the background. It's just, you know, sometimes iconic spaces like this, like get turned into like little touristy spots or something like that. You know, like this is still just a normal road. <laughs> but yeah, it's a whole long street. And I can't imagine it's busy at like all hours of all the days, 50 years on since the album came out. I'm sure it's popular plenty of times, but probably not worth closing the road. The album cover shoot was Paul's idea. And on August 8th, 1969, they did, just like you said, they had police stop traffic and they put Ian McMillan, their photographer, on a stepladder in the middle of the street. They only had 10 minutes to do this before they had to get back to work and traffic had to come in. So they took six photos. This one on the cover was Paul's choice and it's definitely the best by a long shot. Yeah. It's the fifth out of the six photos they took. Have you seen the rejects? No. It's kind of like Uncanny Valley. Like you recognize it, but it's totally different than this. Is it like the same thing? Just are they in different orders or are they just in a slightly different positions? Yeah, different orders out of step. They're very strange. One of the rejected photos actually sold at an auction in 2012 for the equivalent of $25,000. Wow. Yeah. Apparently an estimated 150,000 people come to Abbey Road every year and take that photo. Wow. That is cool. Yeah, I know. And f five of them do not look like an album cover. And one of them is like perfect. Yeah. It's one of the first album covers in history to not feature the band's name or the album title on the album cover. I mean, do you need it? No, 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 no. <laughs> Which is exactly what they said. The album's creative director, John Kosh, said, we didn't need to write the band's name on the cover. They were the most famous band in the world. And it's true. That's the album cover in all its detail. And without further ado, I think it's time we kick off talking about Abbey Road, the album, track by track. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's spin it. Oh, you said the thing. It's been a while since you said that. Yeah. Like we mentioned back earlier in the episode, this album is half normal tracks and then half a giant medley that the band called The Long One. But the album starts off with the normal songs side and it begins with the song Come Together. Surely one you've heard before. Surely one you've played in your marching band show. No, actually, I don't think any of the songs we played in the marching band show came from this album. Oh, what'd you think? You've surely, again, heard Come Together before, even if it wasn't one of the ones you played, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I like Come Together. It's a very interesting track. It's a Lennon song that started out as a campaign song. <laughs> commissioned by Timothy Leary, who was challenging Ronald Reagan to be the governor of California. It was originally called Let's Get It Together, but they changed it when it stopped being a campaign song and just started being a song song. It's about a social outcast. Some people suggest that Lennon meant it to be a self-portrait, but I don't know if that's necessarily 100% accurate. What's your favorite descriptor of the of the social outcast maybe it's his monkey finger his hair down to his knee monkey finger is pretty good i know yeah i think we have to go with monkey finger oh 
Okay, that's a good one. He's got a monkey finger. Actually, the very first line of this song almost got John Lennon sued. Yeah? Yeah, the line is, here come old flat top. He took that line from Chuck Berry. Chuck Berry's publisher was not happy. And in a very interesting settlement, they agreed to drop the case as long as John Lennon agreed to put three of their songs on his 1975 album, Rock and Roll, which is not usually how you settle a case. Yeah. Like song swapping. I think the first thing that jumps out at you when you listen to Come Together has to be the bass and the drums, both in tandem. You know, Ringo's little cymbal work works really well, and the bass is just phenomenal. It's so fuzzy, so big. George Martin said Come Together is a simple song, but it stands out because of the sheer brilliance of the performers. And again, I'm a little biased, but I think so. He might be understating his bias audience. Maybe. There's something to it. Yeah, there is. John Lennon disagrees. He calls it gobbledygook. I see. Yeah, he doesn't feel the same about it. But yeah, that's Come Together. Very strong album opener. Really puts you right there in the mood. I know we gotta go on the track number two, but I have track number three stuck in my head. We'll get there all in time, all in time. First, we gotta talk about something. This is another very popular song, and I wouldn't be surprised if you had pre-existing knowledge of this one as well. Sure do. Yeah, as someone who listens to greatest hits rock playlists. I mean, there's no way this isn't on at least a good portion of them. It sometimes comes up. I bet. George wrote this one. This is a George Harrison song. He was inspired by James Taylor. And initially, it wasn't going to be a Beatles song. He gave the song to Joe Cocker. But he decided that they should cut it as a Beatles tune anyway. And it's a good thing they did. Paul McCartney said it was George's best ever work. John Lennon, again, who was highly critical of a lot of the Beatles work, especially later on, and especially this record, John Lennon said that something was his favorite song on the album. And Frank Sinatra called this the greatest love song ever written. Yeah. I don't know about that, but... Really? What do you think? Uh, Just a tangent. What do you think is the greatest love song ever written? Uh, I don't even know if I can pick one. Well, Frank Sinatra can pick one. Surely. (laughs) Surely you'll think of one sometime. I I can name several that I really like. I just don't know if they're the greatest of all time. Fair. That really put some thought into that. True. It's kind of not a spur-of-the-moment question. Something was released as a double A-side single, along with Come Together. First two tracks, first two singles. And when Something hit number one, it became the first Beatles song to top the charts that wasn't a Lennon-McCartney song. Just for, you know, reference as to how far above the rest of George's catalog this one stood. It makes great use of major seventh chords, which I'm also always a sucker for. And dominant sevenths. There's a transition at the beginning that goes from a major to a major seventh to a dominant seventh. And it is just pretty. And it's not a thing you hear a lot. Even after this, I don't think it's been replicated a ton successfully, which is impressive. We're going to do it. On Connor's Hippin' and Hoppin' album? Yeah, maybe. Okay. I've made a lot of promises for that album. Well, we'll surely deliver <laughs> on... At least one of them. You heard it here first. Something will happen. Bang, bang. Hold on, hold on. Oh. That also doesn't make sense, does it? I don't think it did. That was the gavel, like, like I decree, like, something will happen. Bang, bang. Nah. John Lennon actually got to play the piano on something, which is super cool. It's not his usual thing. Good for him. Nice to see him branching out. Good for him. Something in the way he plays. So the record started with a John Lennon song. We moved into a George Harrison song. Up next is Maxwell's Silver Hammer, and it's Paul McCartney's first addition to the record. If you've been tuned in, you can really hear the differences in each of their three styles so far. Bang, bang. Maxwell's Silver Hammer. Yeah, that's this one. Came down upon her head. Do-do-do-do-do. Clang, clang. Maxwell's Silver Hammer. Made sure that she was dead. That was pretty good. That was wild. Maxwell's Silver Hammer is a bit of a goofy song. You know, the last two songs have been serious, right? Old flat top with his bagism ideals and just trying to 
to make it and get by in the world. Then we get something, the tender ballad, you know, the lover's expression of their feelings. And now we get this campy little song about a murderer, right? It's uh, it's wild. Maxwell just starts killing people with a hammer. It kind of comes out of nowhere, much like the business end of Maxwell's hammer. Heck yeah. This tune drew a lot of ire, especially from John Lennon. He called it granny music, and they said it was overcomplicated. And actually, the rest of the band already told Paul no. They stopped him from putting this song on the White Album. He wanted to do it way earlier. But he was persistent, and he wore them down. And it really didn't help their opinions that Paul was kind of a perfectionist, and he kept having them redo takes and parts to get it just the way he liked it. Huh. And, you know, to hear him talk, he's like, well, we only had to play it three or four times. To hear the other Beatles talk, they're like, man, day in and day out, we played Maxwell's Silver Hammer constantly, like all the time. <laughs> Surprised they didn't commit a murder with a Silver Hammer. I know, yeah. Luckily, they managed to keep it together, but it was tenuous. Not for, not forever. <laughs> no, literally just till the end of the album. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maxwell's Silver Hammer is the first time we get to hear that fancy Moog synthesizer. Paul plays it throughout the song, and it's also the song where they use a bunch of other weird instruments right they use an actual anvil and an actual hammer to get that clank sound in the chorus just right nice yeah paul says that it's his analogy for when something goes wrong out of the blue so it's like a metaphor but it's a very pun intended blunt metaphor he also has no particular reason why the hammer's silver. It just was. It sounded better with an adjective, he said. So he just tacked silver on there. I, I think I agree. I know. Well, yeah, it makes it a little more vivid, right? A little more of that imagery, figurative language. But then we get another Paul McCartney song back-to-back -back with Maxwell's Silver Hammer in Oh, Darling. Oh, Darling. <laughs> yes. What'd you think of this one? Maybe, was this a first-timer for you? I'm sure Maxwell's Silver Hammer was too, probably. Uh, Maxwell's Silver Hammer was Oh, Darling. Twas not. Oh, nifty. I know more Beatles than I think you give me credit for. I give you credit for some, but not a lot. You're right. I, I probably don't give you credit for enough. This is a song I think that never gets old. Every time Oh Darling comes on, I'm into it, you know? It's evergreen. I tend to agree. I like the ones that get more rock and roll than the ones that get more Beach Boysy. Yeah, they do kind of float between those two extremes. I think, especially on this album, a lot. And a lot of that is, again, the dichotomy between Paul and John and George. Trichotomy. Is that a word? <laughs> it is now. I make up words all the time, so I can't uh, can't say anything. <laughs> True. There's just something about the way he, he like devolves into that bridge that's very rock and roll. When you told me you didn't need me anymore, it just feels good. But Paul sang all the raspy vocals. He tried to emulate contemporaries like Frank Zappa, who had a really unique doo-wop sound. And it was such a strain on him. He could actually only record the vocals one take per day at a time. Oh, wow. Yeah, he wanted to try and save his voice because obviously you have a whole album to record. And if you just spend all day on Oh Darling or a week even on Oh Darling, like you're never going to have the vocal stamina to do anything else of value. So he would try and come in early before sessions. So he'd have a little extra time to practice and do it. But he also wanted his voice to be rough, not warmed up. He wanted it to sound like he had been performing on stage all week. Ah. And I think that's an effect that he achieves. Yeah. But to no one's surprise, of course, John Lennon wasn't quite a fan of that. He thought it was much more fitting for his typical vocal style. And actually, I agree with that sentiment. But, but John wanted to be the one to sing it. And of course... Paul kind of took the reins and did it himself. And we got a fine product. It just really is more in line with Lennon's other vocal work, I think. But it's nice to hear Paul branch out a little bit, on the other hand. Yeah, but he doesn't have a monopoly on it. No, that's true. He needs to calm down. 
My first exposure to the next song, Octopus's Garden, did not happen in a way that you might guess that it happened. Were you in an octopus's garden? In the shade. No, I wasn't. How did it happen? Where I was was in my living room as a small child too small to know or care about the Beatles or even realize this was a real song but I remember watching a Jim Henson like Muppets sing-along video with all kinds of music videos performed by the Muppets and Octopus's Garden was on it and I remember it very clearly from that wild yeah I know so that's the first time I heard Octopus's Garden and when I grew up and turned into a Beatles fan I was like this is bizarre I know this it's from the Muppets (laughs) but it's not in fact from the Muppets it is from the Beatles first and man who knew that the Beatles copied the Muppets surely did not that (laughs) would be wild though Ooh, here's another thought experiment like the Hobbit thing which Beatle would be portrayed by which Muppet we can't get into that we don't have time for that right now (laughs) you're right you're right later now back in the beginning I mentioned that the Beatles had a deal where each album features every band member's lead vocals on at least one song. Well, this is Ringo's at least one song. And it's actually a little extra special than most of his other vocal spots because he wrote this one himself. You know, a lot of other albums have him covering a song by someone or singing a Lennon-McCartney song, what have you. But this one, he got to compose. The only two songs that he has sole writing credits on in the entire Beatles discography are Octopus's Garden, and Don't Pass Me By from the White Album. Wow. I know. And even as a co-writer, he only has credits on four other songs. He really just wasn't in the songwriting side of things. But Octopus's Garden is wholly his baby. It was inspired when he took a little family vacation on a yacht. And on that vacation, he was researching a little marine biology, you know, and he learned that octopi like to make themselves little treasure troves of glass and shells and rocks like they collect things, make little gardens, a little garden by their house. So he loved this idea and he turned it into this nifty little tune, sing-songy little Muppet sing-along tune. I like it. The octopus's garden or the song? Well, both. But I was referring to the garden, but since you asked about the song. I bet an octopus would be terrified to find a human in the garden. Not if I was invited. Well, that's true. Are you invited? Okay, he'd let us in. Yeah. But then, of course, he does invite all his friends. Does the octopus invite everybody, or is Ringo being a little presumptuous? Taking advantage of the octopus's hospitality. I don't know if he was being presumptuous. I think he just uh, didn't know any better. Yeah. Like, like it was presumptuous, but not because he, like, was being presumptuous. Just that he... Just happened that way. That's Ringo, you know? My headcanon, too is that this is like a little sequel to Yellow Submarine. You know, like they roll up to the garden in the Yellow Submarine, hop out and have a good old time. Also, how does the octopus know where we've been? I like Octopus's Garden, and there's just something so perfect about that opening guitar riff. I don't think anything on this album matches the song it's a part of quite like that. And now for a song I'm pretty sure you were hearing for the first time on this album. I Want You, She's So Heavy. No. No? You knew this one? I knew I want you, yeah. What? How? It's a good song. But this isn't like one you'd put on a greatest hits of the radio playlist. First off, it's not a radio playlist. It's a Spotify playlist. So, you know, other people curate it, not just like people playing greatest hits on the radio, you know? Well, that's yeah, sure. I don't know. I kind of thought the the like mumble singing was kind of iconic. Like something that just you knew. You know that? (laughs) Maybe. It is iconic in its own way. I don't know. I feel like if it's like a heavier rock one like these songs, I'm going to know it probably is what you should assume. Really? Like Helter Skelter and... And? 
the Beatles don't get too heavy. I mean, there's Revolution. No, I'm just saying, like, if we're on, you remember we said they they have the heavier rock side, and they have Beach Boys. Yeah. If they're on the heavier rock side of their their sound, I'm probably going to know it. Sure. So you knew I want you She's So Heavy. Interesting, because if it weren't for the fact that it's on Abbey Road, and I bet a lot of people listen to Abbey Road in total, I would call this, like, a deeper cut of the Beatles. Interesting. Yeah. What I think... I always recognize this song for is the way that the guitar part follows those vocals with the melody. It's so smooth. It's so clean. I just really enjoy that. But it is probably the weirdest song on the album. And on an album with Maxwell Silverhammer and Octopus's Garden, I mean, that's saying something. Yeah. It's another Lennon track, and it's about his girlfriend, Yoko Ono. What's interesting about the recorded version of the song is that it's actually an amalgamation of two different recording sessions that they smushed together. Oh. Yeah, they recorded half of it, really liked the first take or whatever, and recorded the second half, really liked the next take. They said, well, what are we going to do? Well, let's just cut it in the middle and smoosh it all together. It's pretty wild. And because of that, the final version would actually turn out to be the Beatles' second longest release ever, right behind Revolution 9. And the clock's in at 7 minutes and 44 seconds. Well. I feel like if you've heard the lyrics <laughs> once, you've heard them all. You know, if you make it through that first verse, you've probably just about heard it, the entire song. Yeah. Except for the She's So Heavy break. It's wild. It gets raucous, you know? They start screaming and yelling and wailing. It does get a bit raucous. The white noise and the whipping wind sound effects were, once again, created with that handy-dandy Moog synth. Lennon directed them to stop the song at the end in a really jarring break. They had like 45 seconds left on the tape. Not much time, but Lennon said, cut it. Hard cut right here. And that's why it has such a jarring, abrupt stop. And that's actually what ends the first side of the record is that unexpected jolt. So I think it's a really compelling way to cut the music out. That is cool. Yeah. And again, like I said at the beginning, the last day of mixing for I Want You, She's So Heavy was the last time all four Beatles were in the studio together at once. Sad day. Well, it was a happy day then. Sad day to look back on and realize that was the last time. I wonder if they knew, you know? I'm sh- I mean, I'm sure they knew they were close to the end. They were fighting about administrative stuff left and right and creative differences and whatnot, but I wonder if they were aware that that was the last time they'd be in the studio together. Probably not. I wouldn't guess, but if you're, you know, mixing the last song and sequencing the album, I don't know if there's too much that comes after. So we're halfway through the record. How are you feeling at this point? You've You've listened to these tracks apparently... Like one of which for the first time, but you know, all together, how do they how do they land as a first half of an album all together? Pretty good. Pretty good. That's pretty darn good, is what I'll say. Okay. Yeah, you know, I think it's earned at least a one. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Yeah. What did I? We have not knock on wood, not yet encountered a situation where you don't have an album that's earned at least a one. Yeah, we haven't even earned a one yet. No. Two's my lowest. And that was a a three that changed to a two. Well, I think the one is the lowest it can get. Like, I don't think a zero can exist. I think the fact that you have music, uh, it is an album, Okay, makes it a one intrinsically. Like, a zero is it's not an album. (laughs) Which is almost what you said about Kid A that got your two. So, yeah, really cut it close. I understand, you know, or maybe a zero does exist because, you know, Kid A was your number three. It was my number two. And now your number two is going to be my number one. No, it doesn't have to. Which means your number one will be my zero. No, I don't think that's <laughs> going to be the case. I hope. Anyway. We're in the year of vengeance for another few episodes. 
it's true. Don't threaten me. I'm not. That's not. I'm threaten you? How? What? With what? Don't threaten me. Stop threatening <laughs> sorry, me. Sorry. Let's let's uh, <laughs> much like the end of side A. Let's cut that short right here and flip the record <laughs> into the B side. Here comes the sun. Do, 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 do. I mean, this is just another iconic, you know, line. Like you can't say "Here comes the sun" without finishing it with the do 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 do. Yeah. No, you're so right. Like, it's not possible. Can you tell who wrote this one yet? You know, by your time listening through the album? I probably could if I paid attention to who you said wrote all the other ones. Okay, t- take a guess. I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you that John wrote Come Together and I Want You, She's So Hey. No, 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 I don't need your help. I don't need your help. Stop it. Stop threatening me. <laughs> it's not a threat. I'm just trying to help. Okay, take a guess. George Harrison. George, that's right, wrote Here Comes the Sun. Nailed it. I'm so good. So good. You nailed it. Even with all your threats. Yeah. <laughs> it bears a little bit of resemblance to something, just in the tone of it, I think. He wrote this song when he was hanging out in Eric Clapton's garden on a sunny day. He was pretty good friends with George. Isn't he like one of the leading contenders for the honorary fifth Beatle title? Probably. Yeah, I would imagine. George Harrison skips, I think, some band obligations to go hang out with Eric Clapton's plants. And he's having such a good time. He writes this super mega hit song. Everybody is playing their usual instruments, doing their usual thing on this track, except John Lennon, who was hurt in a car wreck. And it's not on the track at all. Oh, man. It's a pretty popular song, Here Comes the Sun. And while I think something is better and kind of more renowned in a lot of ways, a little more polished and refined, Here Comes the Sun definitely feels more known to the Beatles fans and the general public, I think. Here Comes the Sun's the popular one. So much so, in fact, that it's the band's most streamed Spotify song in their whole catalog. Awesome. Now, between the time I took these notes and the time we recorded this episode, it surpassed a billion streams by like a lot. Oh, wow. When I was taking these notes, it was at like maybe 956 million. Today, it's up to 1 billion 14 million. Oh. This picked up like 30 million streams just in the time it took from notes to episode. Wild. That's awesome. Hey, I got a question for you. Hit me with it. Why? Because. Nailed it. Yeah, because is the next song on the album, track number eight. Are we into the part that's like one giant thing? No, technically not. We're right on the verge. The long one is typically believed to start with You Never Give Me Your Money. I see. Yeah, but that comes in a minute. You know, one night, let me paint a picture, mental picture. Close your eyes and picture the scene. Eyes are closed. Okay. Picturing. You see John Lennon sitting on a couch. He's hanging out with his girlfriend, Yoko Ono. She's playing Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata on the piano. It's a quiet night. It's a gentle night. How's that go again? Well, you know how it goes. You're picturing it. So (laughs) suddenly, wham. Ah! Bam, a threat. No, not a threat. John Lennon has an idea. (laughs) A threat. You're picturing the wrong things. John Lennon's listening to her play this Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. John Lennon has an idea. He says, hey, can you play that backwards? And voila, because was born. He built the melody to fit that inverted chord progression. Oh. Yeah, which is weird, right? Yeah. Just put the song in reverse and write a new melody over it. Is because a song you knew before. It's Beach Boysy on on the scale of Beach Boys to rock. No, I didn't know this one. Wow, so the theory holds true. Of course it does. It's my theory. What'd you think of it? It's a soft, sighing kind of song. Really reminds me of like early Beatles, you know, like Girl or softer, gentler stuff like that. It's okay. 
Okay, solid. There are, speaking of Beach Boys-ness and harmonies, there are nine voices on the final track. John, Paul, and George would sing it through. Each one did a portion of the harmony, and then they did it two more times. So they had a total of nine. They said that it was maybe the hardest vocal part they ever tried to record, which totally makes sense to me, just to listen to it. It's very tight harmonies, very intricate movements. It's, it's involved. Yeah. And I also, I feel like... <laughs> Praising the chord progression is praising Beethoven in a way. So, like, duh. But I also, I just love the major chords here. They're so cool, so innovative. And, well, that's because they're, like, were. Beethoven is a name you know for a reason. The dog. No, not Beethoven the dog. (laughs) Beethoven is a name you know for a couple of reasons. And it's another song. Again, not to overstress its importance to the album, but the Moog synthesizer, like prominent key piece of Because, and it also features a harpsichord played by George Martin. Good for him. Good for him indeed. And now, finally, we get to the long one, the very beginnings, with You Never Give Me Your Money. Okay, brief overview time, though. How much of the medley did you know? It sounded familiar, but I don't think I knew the song. Oh, that's so exciting. I'm so glad I could introduce you to the Abbey Road medley for the first time. What a treat. Like, if I could wipe my memory of it and listen to it for the first time, I would, but I can't, so I don't. But, wow. It's the Abbey Road medley. Yeah. It all kicks off with You Never Give Me Your Money. After their manager, Brian Epstein, died, the band kind of went through this period of administrative uncertainty. They were really divided on how to handle their money, who to recruit as a financial overseer. Obviously, Paul was pretty in tune with these sentiments of financial woes and money things. And so he wrote this song about having, quote, no faith in a person, (laughs) an actual person they were actually considering hiring to be their financial manager. So yeah, it's a little personal, a little intense. I like that this song comes kind of in two waves, right? You start off with the softer, you never give me your money, right? That happens for a couple verses. And then all of a sudden, Paul does his Paul thing, and out of college money spent hits so different than the rest. It's it's show tunesy, it's rocky, it really picks up the pace and the intensity of the song. It does. And then he kind of wrangles it back down on Oh That Magic Feeling. We it's just ebbs and it flows and it ebbs and it flows. And even when you think the song is over, because it does, I mean, it does end, the song does come back up again later in the medley. So we're not done with it, done with it yet. Keep it in your back pocket. But while it's in your back pocket, we got to talk about Sun King. They really almost called it Here Comes the Sun King. And they were like, "Mm, we can't call it that. We've got Here Comes the Sun and Here Comes the Sun King. Like, that's not going to work. So they just cut it down to Sun King. And now the songs only sound very similar. And then when Cirque du Soleil reimagined and remixed all kinds of Beatles songs for their special Beatles love show in Las Vegas, they played Sun King in reverse and called it Nick Nuss. Sun King backwards. Oh. It feels like a very you thing to do. Yeah. (laughs) Sonically on Sun King, they were really inspired by Fleetwood Mac, of all people, and their track Albatross. They used a lot of reverb, a lot of ambient effects on the guitars, and George loved it. Martin, that is. Wanted to go for that style here. Lyrically, the song kind of pretty quickly devolves into a hot mess of absolute nonsense Spanish and Italian words that sound really cool, but absolutely do not mean anything coherent. Cuando para mucho mi amore de felice corazón. It's just there. Yeah. So Sun King comes to a gentle end, and then we get a rockin' drum fill, right? And Mean Mr. Mustard kicks off. It is, I mean, such a fat sound. It is. I love Mean Mr. Mustard. It's a good one. It really is. It's probably my favorite of the medley, actually. Wow, really? 
I think so. Bold. I might contradict myself later on, but we will see. Well, I've heard people assert that there are almost two different medleys. One that lasts from You Never Give Me Your Money down through She Came In Through the Bathroom Window. And then a second mini medley that's Golden Slumbers Carry That Weight and The End. I kind of like to think of it all as one big thing, but that's just me. You know, there's no right or wrong way, except for the wrong way. So, yeah. But Mean Mr. Mustard is definitely a standout track. It always reminds me of Clue, to be honest. Yeah, same. With Colonel Mustard. Colonel Mustard. I mean, who doesn't love the Colonel? John Lennon wrote this self-proclaimed bit of crap while the Beatles were exploring India. It's about... A mean, selfish old man who hides all his money away so people can't get at it. Uh, Kind of a a fitting eventual follow-up to You Never Give Me Your Money. It was inspired, like plenty of other Beatles songs, by a newspaper article about a real guy shaving in the dark, actually named John Mustard. Oh. It's not like they even changed the name for anonymity. Like, they put him out there on blast. Mean Mr. John Mustard. Also, fun little trivia tidbit, Mean Mr. Mustard's sister wasn't always named Pam. She used to be Shirley in demo versions of the song, but when they came up with the medley idea and decided to jam the song so close to Polythene Pam and the medley, they changed Shirley's name to match. So, there you go. You should see Polythene Shirley. She's nothing like Polythene Pam. One of the things I've always loved about the Abbey Road Mendley is that hard cut from Mean Mr. Mustard to Polythene Pam. It's so cool, but that's not what they initially planned on doing. I've changed my mind. Oh, yeah? Mean Mr. Mustard's no longer my favorite of the medley. Is it Polythene Pam? No, it's not. Okay. I just thought since that's where we're headed, maybe that immediately changed your mind. But I guess we'll find out when we get there, unless we've already passed it and it's You Never Give Me Your Money or Sun King. Could be. Could be. Well, we'll have to wait and see. But the hard cut was initially not the plan. They were, at first, going to shove Her Majesty in here, in between Mustard and Polythene Pam. In the end, they decided it was too much of a non sequitur, so they tossed Her Majesty onto the end, which we'll talk about later when we get to it. But when that song starts, you can actually hear the end of Mean Mr. Mustard still going at the beginning of Her Majesty. Fun little quirk, fun little accident that made it onto the album. Polythene Pam, I don't know how much attention you paid to this song. It is unhinged. I don't think I paid that much attention to this one. Fair. Well, polythene, you know polythene, like like plastic, right? Polyethylene plastic. Yep. Well, they pulled the name Polythene Pam from their earliest Cavern Club days. Once again, it's a real person that they really knew. They had a fan who would come watch them at the club who would frequently just eat plastic. Oh. Like sit there and and nibble on plastic. Yum. I, yeah, she said, I used to eat polyethylene or well, polythene because Britain. She said, I used to eat polythene all the time. I tie it in knots and eat it. Sometimes I even used to burn it and then eat it when it got cold. They called her polythene pat, but then once again, they, they pivoted to Pam. As for the lyrics of the song, you know, they're about a weird encounter John Lennon had with a woman in Jersey. So it's a wild one. Don't eat plastic. This is our official spin at PSA. Do not eat polythene. Do better. Unless it tastes good. No, it doesn't taste good. Don't even, you don't even need to eat it to know that it doesn't taste good. Just don't do it. Up next is a track that is potentially Connor's favorite on the whole medley. She came in through the bathroom window. It's not. Okay. Well, it was potentially that until you said so. If she had come through, like, the living room window, that would have been a slam dunk. Really? The bathroom window's less of a slam dunk than the living room window? I don't know. I just needed a different window. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Bathroom windows are weird. People who have windows in their bathroom, weird. It is a little strange. I can understand, like, a window, maybe with a curtain that's closed all the time, or, like, frosted glass, you know? My uncle's house, growing up, had a window in the shower 
of their bathroom up on the second floor. And so like you could see out because it was like a head level. You could see out down into the yard from the shower, but nobody could see you. It was interesting. That is, yeah, not my thing. Probably makes the shower a lot lighter, though. (laughs) That's true. Unless you're taking a shower at night or early in the morning. Yeah. Well, she came in through the bathroom window. Obviously, it's about someone who had a bathroom window. Maybe it's about your uncle. I don't know. Just kidding. I do know, and it's not. (laughs) It's another Paul track after a bit of a drought here. And it is, once again, another true story. Three in a row now. This one actually happened to Paul. A fan climbed up the side of his house and came in, you guessed it, through his bathroom window. I don't think that he was home at the time, but she was with friends. And she went down to the front door and let them in, and they, like took stuff from his house they they stole from him for like souvenir type things which is wild i think it's a pretty strong track on this medley it's one that i always remember pretty well another fun tidbit because i've got a i'm full of them today i'm full of them at the beginning you hear john lennon yell oh look out that's because he was trying to brace himself and like warn the band about the tempo change that was coming between polythene pam and this track he was like brace yourself the song's about to change really drastically it's a cool one it's another little total incidental moment that happened to make it onto the final cut and i just love a little stuff like that it makes this album kind of come alive with personality yeah up next is golden slumbers the beatles attempt at a lullaby not their first oh i thought you were gonna be like uh, i thought you're gonna be like potentially connor's favorite. it could potentially be connor's favorite track in the medley it could be well i've changed my mind again you see oh yeah i've decided i agree with these supposed people that exist out there you mentioned vaguely that think it's two different medleys oh that is two medleys yeah, yeah. you're on team two medley i'm on team two medleys so i'm gonna go back with me and mr mustard for medley one and oh that means the favorite song was from the second half of the medley here. sure was and it was a toss-up between this one and carry the weight but they just flow into one another so well it was hard to pick one they're practically the same song yeah <laughs> they actually recorded them at the same time together too noise i can't tell if i think golden slumbers is the beatles best or second best lullaby there's a song on the white album called good night that also serves really well as a lullaby but we're really winding down the record here also side note spin it and disney legend phil collins covered (laughs) this second part of the medley in 1998 so when paul mccartney was in the beatles you know the whole time he couldn't read music i don't know if that's a thing that you knew yeah one day he found sheet music for a poem turned song called cradle song by the late 16th century poet thomas decker Paul looks at this song, says, I don't know what this means, but I love it. And he changed some of the lyrics around for a stanza or two, right? Takes the words and then makes up his own melody to fit the words since he couldn't read the music for the melody that already existed. Yeah, that's, that's kind of cool. I like this song a lot. It's so soft and quiet, but then once he finally hits that golden slumbers, you know the one, and when the drums come in, he tries to make that absolutely as big of a moment as reasonably possible in the song i think it really knocks your socks off it's so gorgeous and also another fun spin cycle tie-in we talked about phil collins covering it dua lipa covered this song in 2017 oh that's awesome isn't it i know but up next is the second half of this track that like we said they recorded all together carry that weight flows into each other seamlessly I love Carry That Weight. It, it feels like such a natural progression from Golden Slumbers. It is. It's such a good progression. And it also is a song that sees the return, get it out of your back pocket, of You Never Give Me Your Money. It comes back for, for a bit. Yeah. In the context of Abbey Road and this record kind of being the Beatles' farewell moment, people have interpreted the lyrics of Carry That Weight. Boy, you're going to carry that weight a long time. 
to being, you know, about their experience as a band, to be forward-looking into the future. No matter where they all went from here, they were always going to carry that weight of being a part of the world's biggest band for a long, long time to come. I think that's true. This is another song, much like I Want You, She's So Heavy, where it's a couple takes smushed in together. The final version here is made of both the 13th and 15th takes of the song. Paul actually initially planned this as another song for Ringo to sing, so he almost got two on this album, but in the end, Paul decided to take the vocals for himself. And Dang. Yeah. Selfish. Selfish, maybe, but also really good. <laughs> and he wrote it, you know? I feel like he gets first dibs. And then we come to The End, which is not the last song on the album, ironically, but it is perhaps a little on the nose as the last song the Beatles ever recorded together. And what... A way to go out. What'd you think of the end? I have a question. On Spotify, there's another one after the end called Her Majesty. Yes, Hidden Track. Hidden Track, I see. Yeah, we'll talk about it in a second. But the end was actually meant to be the end of the album. Is the end actually the end, or that was going to influence my opinion on it? Yeah, I. how does that influence your opinion to know that it actually was intended to be the end? But was it the end? It was the last song they ever recorded together, end of their career. Is it the end of the album? Well, in the final released version, technically no. I hate it. (laughs) (laughs) No. How dare they? You can't hate it. It's so good. How dare they? How dare you? It's a good song. It's great, but they didn't make it the end, and they called it the end, which negates a good chunk of its greatness. We'll talk about it. We'll get to the end of the end. But on this song, everybody gets a guitar solo, and and Ringo gets a drum solo. Ringo actually only has this. This is his one and only drum solo as a Beatle right here. What do you think? As far as drum solos go, I guess it's not super knock your socks off, but really, it's like peak Ringo. It's no Phil Collins. Well, he's no Phil Collins gorilla. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I love it. It's a it's a good solo. For the guitar solos, Paul, George, and John each took turns with little two-bar sets going back and forth in that order. They went Paul, George, John, Paul, George, John. And you can hear the distinct differences in their style and in their playing if you really... I guess are attuned to it and like listen for it and know it's coming. Their recording engineer, Jeff Emmerich, said that the three of them, quote, looked like they had gone back in time, like they were kids again, playing together for the sheer enjoyment of it. More than anything, they reminded me of gunslingers with their guitars strapped on, looks of steely-eyed resolve, determined to outdo one another. Yet there was no animosity, no tension at all. You could tell they were simply having fun. And I think that fun shows. It's a high-energy, fun song. Actually, all that back and forth with the guitars led Q Magazine to name this the number seven greatest guitar song of all time in 2007. How's that grab you? I've been grabbed. It's a threat. It's a threat. (laughs) No, no, no. (laughs) So the end doesn't have a ton of vocals. You know, oh yeah, all right. Are you going to be in my dreams tonight? Solos forever. And then we get this little love you, love you, love you, love you section. And we end with one of the most iconic lyrics the Beatles ever put on a record. Paul said he was inspired by Shakespeare to end this massive side encapsulating medley with a couplet, a single little couplet, which again, is just one of the most memorable, apt lines the Beatles ever created that says, and in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. It was quite literally their last farewell message as a band to the world. Wow. I just, I don't think you could put a better capstone on a medley, on an album, on a career that changed music than what they've done right here on the end. Wow. It's high stakes. But yet it still isn't your number one. It's not. It's not my number one album, but I had a hard time 
ranking it, that's for sure, because it could have been. Just It's just everything, everything that they've done throughout their entire career as a band. It just all comes together, pun intended, in such a moving way right here. It leaves me absolutely, like, stunned. Jaw on the ground every time. Marvelous. Like, what? Yeah, that's it. I just don't have any more words. Well, that means it's time for a final spin. No, no, no. We got a hidden track. Oh, you do. Oh, 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 oh. Yeah, hidden track in Her Majesty. Like I said way back up in the Polythene Pam days, they meant to stick this one there in the middle of the medley. And actually, they were about to cut it entirely. When they realized it wouldn't fit there, they were like, let's just get rid of it. Paul actually told them to destroy the tape. Delete it. Gone. Burn it. But all the engineers got instructions from the head honchos, the higher-ups at EMI Records. They said, don't you ever, 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 ever destroy anything the Beatles do. Ever. We mean it. That's a threat. Ah! (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) They said it. And so the recording engineers were like, let's maybe not destroy this. Let's just, like, stick it here at the end of the record, and then we'll come back to it later. So they put it on the end of the record. And then they forgot about it. They forgot about it for a while. And when they got to the final review of the album, they heard it still sitting there. I'm sure Paul was like, what the heck? Like, I told you to destroy this. And they went, hey, don't look at me. You know, not my fault. (laughs) But yeah, they loved it and it stuck. There are 14 seconds of silence between the end and Her Majesty, much less than the 10 minutes before Nirvana's Nevermind hidden track. That was excruciating. Also, the song itself is only 23 seconds long, making it the shortest Beatles song ever released. Wow. I know. It makes Abbey Road very, very close to earning our Spin It Award for the greatest track length differential, but it doesn't. It's still a 40-second differential short of dethroning Yes on Fragile. Oh, wow. With Roundabout and Cans and Brams, as you said. Cans and Brahms. I forget which way you stuck with it, but yeah. (laughs) Her Majesty, I mean, for as great as the ending of the end is, Her Majesty ends with this little fumbly, stumbly mistake. Fumbly, stumbly. Yeah, Paul calls it a typical Beatles accident. It's very characteristic of them, and I love it. So now... We've tackled a lot. What an episode. We've done a, a, a ton yeah. of, of facts and background and about the album and, and factor spin and fast fire facts and about the album art and Paul is dead <laughs> and then about the A side of the record with all his tracks and individual things and then about the massive long one medley and, and now we're here at the end of all things. Final spin. Final spin time. My score should be pretty unsurprising, I think. And there's frankly not much to say that hasn't been said on my part. Music, wow. I mean, it's a showstopper. I'm giving it a 99 for music. Almost every melody on this album, uh, to me, is pretty borderline unforgettable. Don't know about all that. I'm quite biased, but um, but 99 for music. <laughs> what stops it from the 100? I'm going to put you on the spot. What stops it from a 100? Good question. Not much. Honestly, I don't know. Just I, a little bit of the, the white noise, maybe, and I want you, she's so heavy. Uh, Sun King kind of always hits me a little strange. Really, that's about it. I don't know what it could do better. I think you just told us. Yeah, I, I guess. I guess so. It seems close. As for lyrics, I like that a lot of these songs are based on real life situations that they've experienced, you know? And the ones that aren't are still just so well constructed. I mean, Maxwell Silverhammer is a little goofy. I want you, she's so heavy. Is It doesn't mean much. But I think it all works. Just in the context of this album, this medley, it's all very solid. Lyrically, 96. Instruments and production, George Martin is a genius. He's just a wizard on the board. He brings this album to life. And like we said, with that special solid state transistor recording, 
This album has a whole kind of sonic depth and tone quality that all the other Beatles albums like lacked. They just didn't have it because the technology wasn't there. So this album is like a revolutionary album for recording technology and production. Not to mention it features all the vocals of all the members, which kind of counts as an instrumental. You know, they're contributing to the sound of the song. Uh, but it also features solos from all of the members for the first time, right? Everybody writes the songs, plays the songs well. Everything's arranged great. If you didn't know any better, you would have thought this was like them hitting their high stride as a band together. And then they never were together again. Yeah, I know. It feels like they should just be peaking, right? <laughs> and and they just ended. Yeah. Went out in a blaze of glory, arguably at the top of their game. To be fair, maybe this was the peak. I mean, and it just crashed after the peak. <laughs> Fair. 98 for instruments in production. Overall vibe. I wouldn't call this a concept album, right? But... Uh, of course not. I would know I'm the king. No, you would know. You're the not the sun king, the concept king. Here comes the concept king. Do-do-do-do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's just hard to overlook. Such a massive medley like the long one. And carry that weight. Golden Slumbers carry that weight at the end. It's a perfect end to this album. I don't think there's a moment that I'm like disengaged from this whole record. Would have been nice if the end was the end. Well, it's not. Her Majesty is the end. Yeah. Just as, as the last body of work the Beatles would record together. I mean, it already holds such like historical significance. The vibe score is a perfect 100. I don't give that lightly. I don't give that to a lot of albums. But the vibe score, out of all the scores categories, vibe is the most likely to hit 100. It's not the only album to do it. So anyway, that puts its overall score at a whopping 99.2. And at, as we've mentioned, number two, overall on my list can't wait to do the band that beat them <laughs> yeah it's one tenth <laughs> of a point above radiohead's kid a two tenths of a point above pink floyd's dark side and four tenths of a point below number one wow i know so that should give you a, a, a sense of my feelings towards number one and number two love them both dearly no spoilers we'll get to number one eventually we have to but we've got a lot more episodes to do and we couldn't do the number one album here at episode 100 gotta keep you coming back it'll be episode 1000 yeah the spin it pod millennium celebration 900 episodes away 900 short weeks get ready so that's my score that's my take here what about you mr heard a lot of the singles but get into that medley for the first time yeah, the two medleys, uh, hashtag team two medleys. Sure. We're pretty cool. Pretty cool, right? The second one was definitely better than the first one. Well. Other than the fact that it isn't in with the end. but It's a lot more succinct. It's constructed. It's tight. You know, the, the second medleys. It's it's really just Golden Slumbers and the care that way just is a powerhouse. And the end is also a standalone powerhouse, regardless of how it connects to the other two. But yeah. Meh. Meh. I, I can't believe this. The end hate. <laughs> Big fan of, yeah, a lot of the singles. Even, as, again, uh, you know, credit where credit's due. I knew more than you thought. You did. Credit to you, as it is therefore due. My top three. This is an exciting top three. In album order. Yeah. For the hundredth time. Come together. Something. Oh, two from the top two. Honorable mention to Maxwell's Silver Hammer. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, darling. Yeah. Honorable mention to Octopus's Garden. You're taking extra honorable mentions. Okay, sure. I want you. She's so heavy. That's in your top three. Wow. And here comes the sun. Wow. That's that's the most we've had in a while. That is uh six Connor top threes. What'd you do? Go over by two? Uh, or sorry, that's seven. I was I gonna say count. a lot of top threes. <laughs> we have a math department full of squirrels for a reason. All right, we're gonna have to make sure they're trained up on triple digits. I'm sure they are. Because we're there now. 
But yeah, I took seven Connor top threes, two Connorable mentions, and uh, five just top threes. Right. <laughs> All from the first half of the album. It's true. So yeah, that's a that's a snub on the medley, including Golden Slumbers carry that weight. I know I liked it, but I didn't want to take both of them, and I didn't feel it didn't feel right to only take one over the other. Yeah. Okay. And because it's a medley, uh, I kind of lumped them all together. So I felt like, you know, the end kind of pulled it down out of top three territory. Unreal. (laughs) As for my score, the thing we've all been waiting for. We have. This is getting an eight out of ten. That hurt. I heard you say an, which immediately eliminates nine (laughs) and ten. (laughs) And my heart sunk. That, oh. Isn't it weird that we say... I wouldn't say and one. I would just, I would say a one. Yeah, like the steak sauce. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's it. Maybe the steak sauce has perverted all of our use of and. And one steak sauce. <laughs> so an eight. Wow. That kind of surprises me. So it was in nine territory for a long time. Don't, don't hurt me like this. Yeah. The medley pulled it down. The medley pulled it down. That's the defining feature of Abbey Road. That's like its thing. It didn't do it for me. The long one is like what it's known for. I'm the singles guy. I'm the singles guy. Ah, uh, when you put it like that. Of course, I'm going to like the singles better. Okay. That it does make sense. Yeah. Especially on the hundredth episode, you've professed to be the singles guy from actually episode zero like that's the reason we we started the podcast yeah (laughs) so i guess that makes sense wow what a way to accentuate our differences within one album you're still the singles guy all these episodes later i'm still the album guy you've i mean you've perverted me some don't say it like that i do do. (laughs) (laughs) yeah i've influenced your opinion on albums to a degree. You made me make small, you know, changes to my, to sure. my habits. I, I, I do enjoy a good album. You know, concept album guy too. I like to think I've expanded your musical horizons, even in a single sense, like in a little bit. I'm hoping that, you know, sometimes some of the stuff from albums you might not have liked on the playlist still comes up with like a good single. Yeah, absolutely. Plenty of examples of that. Yeah, you can still rock out to... A big one is actually uh, Inner Wave. Yeah. I love both the singles from that one, even though it only got a score of six. Yeah, that was a fun one. So where in your eights is this one going? How far away from nine territory did the long one drag it? It is going right below Randy Travis. Right below Randy Travis. That currently puts it at like fourth place on your eights. Yep. Okay. It could have been a lot worse. I mean, you teased some horrible things. This is the year of vengeance, and, (laughs) you know, that could have been worse. I couldn't do it to you. I really wanted to. I also couldn't do it to myself. Yeah. Like, in the moment, I would have had such gratification, but then every episode after, when I had to look at it down at a score of one, I just would have been annoyed. Yeah. Mainly because it would have been below Kanye. (laughs) Yeah, well, there's a lot of stuff (laughs) officially below Kanye in your fours, threes, and twos. He snuck in at a five. He got lucky. Yeah. What was your unit, though? We've got all these scores. We know where it ranks, but we don't really... We need to know what's less than a click-clack, and but more than things that are more than whole. A hundred episodes of units like this. <laughs> that that stems back to episode zero. Yeah, when you jokingly told me I needed a unit <laughs> for my score. I guess on a technical level, I mean, I give it a score out of a hundred 
points, maybe. I I don't have a unit. It's, I know it's, it's what it's what was so absurd about you being like, oh, what's your unit? Like I, I loved it. Well, it's just that our scales are so different. You know, I can't compare my 100 to your 10 unless I know what your 10 is made of. So yeah, that's fair. I think with how much you know to get my satisfaction that I've been wanting all episode, you know, your vengeance. Oh yeah. I think the only fitting unit for this episode is uh, eight ones. Eight ones? <laughs> ah, I can't be mad because eight ones is still equal to eight. No, they're all individual. You can't add them. You can't add them. No, they live in separate households. Oh, what if one came in through the bathroom window? Then you could add it. Okay, what if it invited all his friends to the octopus's garden? Oh, there's eight legs. Eight? There'd be a leg for each one. A leg for each one? What's that mean? <laughs> Eight ones. That's my unit. Eight ones. The long ones. Now we have to make our playlist picks for the favorite songs playlist, which, by the way, you can find on Spotify and on YouTube. We don't currently have a way to use Apple Music, but if we did, we'd get it there. You can also find it on our website. Yeah. I'm going with Maxwell Silver Hammer. Maxwell Silver Hammer. No questions asked. <laughs> really? No. Okay. I just wanted to see if you'd freak out. I didn't freak out. I mean, it's a fun song. I, I like it well enough. I, I mean, I... I am kind of feeling come together, though. I mean, as I said, I prefer the the more rock-centered sound, so I think I gotta go come together. Sure. That puts you in a tough predicament. Uh, the whole thing was gonna be a tough predicament for me either way. Can't just drag and drop the whole album onto the playlist. That'd be unfair. Maybe I'll take the whole medley. I'll let you do it if you if you let me do it. Nope, that's that's not a deal I'm willing to make. <laughs> Smart. <laughs> I literally would have just Googled longest album. <laughs> <laughs> I think for the playlist specifically. Do, 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 do. It's all right. It's what I was one of my options. I'm also feeling a soft spot for Oh Darling on the playlist. However, and on something is nice too. I feel like you got to pick something from the from the Beach Boysy side of their sound. You're right. We'll get both halves in. Although it's kind of funny to call their sound Beach Boysy because the Beach Boys were like inspired by a lot of the Beatles stuff. And actually, we'll talk someday about their back and forth. Well, maybe they, maybe they should have been a little more inspired, like taking a few extra notes, and maybe they would have gotten a better score. I mean, we did talk already about this. We on our Pet Sounds episode, we talked about how they helped inspire the Beatles and Sgt. Pepper and then the Beach Boys were inspired by Sgt. Pepper and they like played Wii Tennis back and forth. Just bam, 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 bam. Like flipping ideas back and forth. Yeah. Anyway, I'm going to take Here Comes the Sun. I'm, I'll do it. Do, 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 do. We'll get it closer to 2 billion streams. Yeah. Here we are at the end. Some may say it's the end. I say we're we're at the beginning of our triple digits. This is a whole new era. A new era. Yeah. The Spin It podcast. Not a new season of Factor Spin. Nope. Still season six. Not a new year. Still in the year of vengeance. Still for another four episodes. What a, a new, new era. era. New day has dawned. And you can keep up with that new era by following us on social media, on podcast platforms everywhere. Our social media, we're at Spin It Pod on Twitter, at Spin It Pod Official on Instagram, and you can find us on the web at spinitpod.com. Don't forget to check out that special Spin It 100 tab under bonus content for all the shenanigans. Blooper reels, hot chicken videos, I cry and eat mac and cheese. That's true. That's all on the bonus content tab. Not to mention our playlists are there, our episodes are there, and you'll have to follow us on Twitch at Spin It Pod. We'll be having some very fun live streams over the course of the next month celebrating our 100th episode and first two years. No birthday celebrations, though. No. Those aren't allowed. No. Hey, if I can't celebrate Duke Ellington's birthday, what's this all been about? Thank you so much for making these first 100 episodes so incredible. They've been a blast for us. I hope 
that they've been a blast for you to listen to, that you've had some fun or some laughs, or you've learned something, discovered some new music. But thanks a lot for your support and your listenership. That really just means the world. We started this on a whim. We didn't really have ambitions. We continued it on a whim. We're making it right now on a whim. On a whim, but we're having fun doing it and really enjoying ourselves. So it's just been so nice to have this outlet for the last hundred weeks. Yeah. And we're going to keep them coming. Keep on outlet. That's right. And so for the 100th time and with the help of our writing department and listeners like you, what if this is the last time we all record together what if this is our i want you she's so heavy moment yeah no it can't be who do you think it would be that went between you me and the mixtaper between all of us all three of us between you and me i feel like if you walk the mixtaper is gonna walk too my pigeons well the pigeons could fly away they are racers at heart the end her Majesty. No, the end. We're not. <laughs> we're not making that mistake. <laughs> That's no mistake at all. 